Father Rob Gallia is an ordained Catholic priest and is currently serving in Sandhurst Diocese, Victoria, Australia. Yes, isn't that cool? He is a singer and songwriter with an international fan base, and I just joined his fan club today. I just did. He was a contestant in Australia's 2015 The X Factor. He also sang the English versions of the official 2008, 2016, 2019 World Youth Day songs. He and his team currently minister to over 400,000 young people each year, carrying Christ's message of hope and relationship with Jesus to all they encounter. Father Rob's passion is to draw others to the heart of God. He believes that music and film are an important instrument in healing, in healing, in helping people understand the need for intimacy with God. This is a pretty incredible priest here. So let's give a warm welcome to Father Rob Gallia. Thank you so much. Wow. What a wonderful privilege it is to be here. Before we go any further, I just want to acknowledge two things. One is that I am terrified <laughs> to stand in front of you. Um, and it's not because you are terrifying, it's that I am an introvert. So I'm a person who finds it so difficult to stand in front of people to talk. But you'll never know when I'm up here. I'm an introvert who hides in a corner. When I come out here to speak, I speak with boldness, I speak with fire in my heart, and I speak because I want you to understand just how incredible you are and what an amazing plan God has for your life. You see, I experienced the love of God for the first time when I was 16 years old, after a time of rebellion, a time of addiction, a time where I didn't want to live anymore. I didn't want to wake up in the mornings. I used to wake up and cry myself to sleep at night. And it was a really difficult moment. But it is a moment which has triggered in my heart a desire to share God's love with the world because I experienced the darkness. And because I experienced the darkness, now I appreciate the light so much. A little bit about myself. I am a priest that lives and works in Australia. I am originally from a small island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, the island of Malta. Now Malta, for those of you who don't know where Malta is, shame on you because we're actually mentioned in the Bible. A whole chapter in the Bible, Acts chapter 28. America, on the other hand, <laughs> nor is Australia. But Malta gets a whole chapter. It's the place where St. Paul shipwrecked. And we always laugh about it because Malta is so small that most maps don't even show Malta. It's just the name Malta, and it's a dot. You cannot see it. So 
thinking about it, if he moved from Jerusalem, sailed from Jerusalem to Rome, he must have either been a really bad driver or God wanted him for some reason to shipwreck on the island of Malta. And because of that, Malta is a place that is a Catholic country. It's a place that is 98% Catholic, but it is also a place where I grew up and a place where I discovered my faith. I was, another thing I want to acknowledge is that I walk a lot on stage. Look, I'm at 4,658 steps. I think I'll go up another 2,000 by the time I end this talk. So for those of you who are at the front, you have my permission to look away when your neck gets tired, okay? <laughs> so I just want to share a little bit. I am an introvert. I'm a person who would not, doesn't like to, to stand in front of crowds. I, my ideal day is to hide in my room. I have a little dog. Um, he's he's a, a cute dog. Uh, actually, my dog is cuter than your dog. Um, I'll just show you my, my little dog. Um, he's, a, he's a Maltese Shih Tzu, but a, but a miniature one. Um, I don't know if we can bring him up onto the screen. Just a moment. And so, um, this is... There you go, you got to see him for a second. So, this, um, this is him here. Um, he's, a, he's a tiny, little, tiny dog. Um, and my ideal day is just to hang out with this little dog, mind my own business, watch Netflix all day, no chill, just hide from the world and, and enjoy his company. But instead, I get to, to travel around the world, I get to speak. In fact, over the last few years, I got to speak to over 1 million people, 1.4 million people every year. And, I'd, and I'm just saying this just to show you that an introvert, me, if I as an introvert can stand in front of people and speak, you can do it, okay? So this is the amazing thing that I get to experience and I get to speak to people. But at the end of the day, what I want to share here today is my heart. I'm not going to come to you with any theological synthesis. I'm not going to come to you with anything extremely profound and philosophical. And I just want you to see my heart. Because one thing I will tell you is that I'm in love with Jesus. I'm in love with Jesus. I'm, and I want you to hear this heart that is in love with him. Now, I'm not perfect. I'm messed up. How many of you are messed up here? If the person next to you didn't put their hand up, just turn to them, tell them, you're messed up. In fact, turn to the person next to you and tell them, you're messed up. Each and every one of us, a mess. But isn't that beautiful that God can take our mess, he can take our mess, and he can turn it into a message. This is what Jesus does. Jesus takes our mess, if we're ready to acknowledge our mess and say, God, here's my mess, turn it into a message. That's what he did for the apostles. That's what he did for the saints. And that's what he's going to do for you and, and for me. And so if you're sitting here thinking, man, I'm not holy enough. I'm not good enough. I don't have faith enough. I don't have enough understanding and intellect. You fit right in. If you're messed up, you're in the right place. You see, because this is what God does. He takes our mess. He chooses us in our brokenness. But he loves us too much to leave us there. And this is my experience. And I'm going to share a little bit of my experience of how I came to encounter the love of God. But it was a battle. It was a struggle. 
I'm a singer-songwriter. I write music, I record music, and I get to travel and speak and sing to, to people. And I will, I'll sing for you. But one of the things that I spend most of my time is that I work in a charity where we develop resources and try to change culture and work with teens especially who are struggling with suicide and, and self-harm. It's a charity we set up in the United States and also in Australia. And the reason why I want, I'm so passionate about reaching people like that is because I was a person like that. I was a person that struggled every day to get up in the morning, struggled every day to face life, struggled every day to think that I could have a future. But there were situations in my life, people in my life, graces in my life that wouldn't allow it to happen. And I want to encourage you as women that you have so much power, so much potential, so much fire in your hearts. And the thing is the devil tries to sell you short, tries to tell you that you're not good enough, you're not strong enough, you're not powerful enough. But I'm here to tell you that you are, that you can change lives. You can, through prayer, through wisdom, change the lives of those you've been praying for for ages. Your children, grandchildren, friends, family. God is going to use you. But you need to know this. You need to know that you are a warrior woman. Just turn to someone and tell them, you're a warrior woman. And what does a warrior do? A warrior prepares for war. A warrior knows that she has the strength, not because she is strong alone, but that she stands with an army that is unbeatable. And this is what God does and God wants to do in your life. And this is grace. And I want to share my story of grace and how one particular warrior woman was instrumental in helping me not only survive, not only thrive, but to use my mess to become a message to the ends of the earth. was lost but now I'm found no longer blind I see I have chosen to run this race determined to reach the end cause I have forgotten it's only by grace that I can see your face only by grace the eagles fly By that same grace you'll lift me high I 
lift up my hands to you It's you alone who can show me the way The way to the Father's throne to walk alone It was to no avail But when all's been said and done I know that I'm too frail Cause only by grace the eagles fly By that same grace you'll lift me high I lift up my hands to you It's you alone Who can show me the way The way to the Father's throne Cause only by grace the eagles fly By that same grace you'll lift me high I lift up my hands to you It's you alone Who can show me the way And only by grace can I see That I can be all I'm called to be I lift up my hands to you It's you alone who can show me the way The way to the Father's throne I was brought up on a small island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, this island of Malta. And I was telling you that Malta is famous for a couple of things. The first thing is that it is a Catholic place, 98% Catholic. Now, there are churches everywhere in Malta. There are 365 churches in Malta for an island which is about 20 miles to about 25 miles long. So it is a tiny island, 365 churches. We have religion everywhere. Even you go onto a public bus, on a pub public transport, and you see churches, you see statues on the, on the bus. People are waiting for the bus with bouquets of flowers, and you're thinking, oh, how romantic. And they're going up onto the bus, and you're trying to get onto the bus, and they're laying it down at the feet of Mary on the bus. And so you have to walk over flowers. And so it is this place where people sit on their, uh, their doors and they're spraying the rosary outside. And we have all of these, this beautiful scenario. In fact, this is our capital city. As you're going into the capital city by water, it is this place which is full of churches around, a lot of steeples. 
And it's also a place, this is the church where I was baptized, which is considered to be a small church <laughs> by the ocean. It's a feast day, beautiful church. And so a lot of Maltese people go and, and practice their faith. But also, the Malta is another place which has beautiful beaches. Just wanted to show that, again, our beaches are nicer, nicer than your beaches. It is a beautiful, stunning place. Actually, we have only one beach that looks like that, and I took the photo of that. But, but other, other beaches are beautiful, but not anything like that. So these are, again, capital. Anyone watch Game of Thrones? Okay, shame on you again. Okay, no, I'm joking, I'm joking, joking. Now, most of it was filmed here um, on, in this area over there. So in the, season one, actually, this is the, um, the credits at the beginning. You can see this, this picture. So Malta is a beautiful place, but it's also, also a place of partying. Now, Malta has one of the biggest street parties in the world. And my, next to my parents' home, we had a place, this place, called Parcheville, which, had, uh, which has about 150 nightclubs door-to-door. Um, it is a really party. In fact, even Malta sponsors one of the biggest street parties in the world, the government, called the Isle of MTV, which is a party with 200,000 people from all around, literally, Europe come to this party. You see that church on the end? That church, if you see, on, if you're looking at, at the left, there's a, there's a church. That is St. Publius. That, is, that place is actually mentioned in Acts chapter 28 when Paul goes to pray with Publius' father. And they built a small um, niche there, then they built a chapel, then they built a basilica. And so this is pretty much the story of Malta. They're back sometimes to the church and looking towards the stage and partying. This is paid for by the government. So we are a big party place. And I was brought up on this island, which was very Catholic but also a party place. But another thing is that my parents, you see, I was brought up with very strict parents. Anyone here have strict parents? Now, you see, there's a difference between old school strict and new school strict. So there's, uh, let me just give you an example of old school and new school. Is a new, new, unless, you, any Italians here? Okay, you know what I'm talking about. You, you're part of, you're probably part of the old school strict. The new school, if something goes wrong at school, something, I don't know, you're at school and, or at work and someone offends you, you're upset, you go, to your, you, you go home and, and, and you're upset, you slam the, the front door and you go to your, to your bedroom and, and you, the world hates you and everybody around you hates you and you feel so depressed and, and lonely and upset. And this is new school strict. And then you hear, then you hear a knock on the door after a few minutes of, of you crying, and you hear from the door, sweetheart, is there anything I can do for you? You sound upset. Now that's what we call new school, you see? For me, it was like I would go home, I'd slam the front door. By the time I got to my bedroom, my dad was waiting inside my bedroom. The next day, I didn't walk to the bus stop, I limped to the bus stop. It was no comfort. Even before I did anything wrong, I was in trouble. I'd be having my cereal, minding my own breakfast. I had a good day, 
at school because I posted something on Instagram and the girl I like at school, now this is hypothetical, okay, because it would be creepy if it were now, and someone, this girl at school liked it and I, I'm so excited to go to school because she so liked my Instagram picture, so I'm so going to ask her out and she's so going to say yes, and I have all of this in my mind as I'm eating my cereal, and as, uh, with my backpack, and all of a sudden my dad comes boom on the back of my head. And I turn around, I say, Dad, what was that for? I didn't do anything wrong. And he pointed at me and says, Rob, you haven't done anything wrong yet. <laughs> but you will. And so I always felt I wasn't good enough. I always felt I wasn't clever enough. I always felt I wasn't successful enough. I'd give my dad my report and say, Dad, look, I passed all my exams. And he'd look at my report and say, that's fantastic. You've passed all your exams but I'm sure you're going to fail next time. And I'd think, WTF, why the face? Why would you say that? You see, what, why, the, the point was, he kept putting me down and saying, Rob, you're not good enough, but, and that's the message I kept getting, that no matter how much you try, you'll never be good enough. But what he was trying to say was, you need to keep working hard so that you can succeed. But that was not the message I was getting, so, I started to rebel. I started to think, I don't want to hang out with my parents anymore. You see, I would get into fights. I couldn't stay in the same room as my dad. I was so frustrated and so angry. And till I reached a point where I just didn't want to hang out with him anymore. And I go up to my dad and I say, Dad, Mom, I want to go. I was 14 years old. Now, I want you to understand that the drinking age in the United States is 21. The drinking age in Malta is 16. If you're 14, was I going to get an applause for that? <laughs> you're 16. If you're 14 and you look 16, they'll still let you into a nightclub. They'll still serve you drinks. And so I'd go there and I'd, I, I, I'd, I'd go, I went up to my parents. I'd say, Mom, Dad, I'm, I'm 14 years old. I'm a big boy now. I want to go to the clubs. And I remember them one time looking at me and they say, saying, okay. You can go to the nightclubs, but you have to be back by 8.30. <laughs> and I'm thinking, 8.30, that's the time the nerds go home. Everyone else goes home at 8.45. <laughs> so I thought, nah, I'm not going to go out. And I waited for my parents to go to sleep, and I stood outside of the, the I sat on my windowsill, and then I, I jumped out of the window. It was like half a story, so it was safe. Like, and I jumped out, and I, at 10 o'clock at night, I would go to the nightclubs, 14 years old. But when I went there, there were 17, 18-year-olds, and they'd sneak me into the nightclub. Now, they'd go, they'd serve me drinks, and, and, and I, would, I would drink. As an introvert, as a shy person, I didn't have the courage to talk to the girls. I didn't have the courage to, to dance. I didn't have the courage to have conversations. But when they gave me these drinks, all of a sudden, I was drinking these cups of courage, and I'm thinking, whoa, this is awesome. And I had the confidence to, to talk and to dance, and thank God they didn't have camera phones then, but I, like, I, I loved it. It was awesome. And you know what else I loved? I loved that I was getting so much attention. I was getting attention because I was a 14-year-old, the cutest kid in there, you know, like, and everyone wanted to be around me, watch me get drunk, and, and they wanted to, to see how I reacted, and it was, it was amazing, and I, I loved it, so every weekend I'd sneak out and I'd go, and I was loving the attention, I was uh, loving the love that I was getting, 
And so I kept doing it, but eventually other 14-year-olds started to come into the club, and I wasn't getting the attention I wanted. And so I started to do things to get the attention. I started smoking, and eventually started smoking weed, and from there, which was illegal then, still is, and then from there I started to take other drugs just so that I could get the attention. And people started to give me this attention for a while, but then everyone else was smoking weed, everyone else was taking the drugs, and so I needed to do bigger things and greater things to get the attention. I was just so hungry for love. I was just so desperate to feel wanted, to feel appreciated, and to feel liked. And so I would do anything. I remember one time I was with a group of friends, and I said, I'm going to try something new. And so I go into a Kroger's, I go into a store, and I, as, I, as I walk into this store, I tell my, my friends, guys, look at this. And I was going to steal something. And I wanted them to see this. And so they were with me, and I walked into the, the store, and I, I walked, and I grabbed the first thing I could find, and I held it to my side, and I walked out of security. I got away with it, and my friends surrounded me, and they said, they said Rob, let's see what you took, what you took. And so I opened my hands, and it was vanilla essence. And they looked at me, what are you going to do with vanilla essence? I didn't care about the vanilla essence. What I cared was that I stole something, I got away with it, and I got attention for it. And so the next day, I went out, and I stole a pair of sunglasses. And then I went out, and I stole a hoodie. And this, with the drugs, with the smoking, with the drinking, started to become an addiction for me. And so I'd go into, I couldn't enter into a shop without thinking about something to steal. I couldn't see my mother's handbag without stealing something. I couldn't go to a friend's house with my heart beating so fast and my palms starting to sweat because I needed the rush. I needed to steal, you see? That's the way addiction works. You have control of it, but then there comes a moment when you look back and you think, oh my goodness, I have no control. And it starts to slowly tear away at who we are. And so my life, at the age of 14, 15 years old, all of these addictions started to take over my life. And I started to get into trouble, and I started to do crazy things. But the fights with my parents started to get worse and worse, and so I decided I, I wasn't going to stay home anymore. I left home, and I started couch surfing, staying at friends' houses. And one day I was with a group of friends and we went with our bicycles to a computer store. And as we're cycling to our computer store, we park our bikes outside. And I see this computer on the window, in the in window display. And I tell my friends, guys, look at this. This is amazing. And so as they go in, everyone goes in. I tell the shopkeeper, I say, hey, do you have the older model to this computer? Because this is too expensive. And he goes to the back of the store. And when he goes to the back of the store, I grab this computer, put it in my backpack, and I go run to my bicycle, and I cycle away as fast as I can. And I'm thinking, this is amazing. This is going to give me enough money to buy all the drinks, all the drugs I want. This is going to allow us to party for weeks, and my friends are going to love this. I'm going to share it with my friends. This is amazing. And so I'm on my bicycle. I'm cycling as fast as I can, looking back to see if my friends caught on so that they could come and join me, and they did. And I was cycling, but when I looked back, I realized that they looked angry. In fact, my best friend at the time caught up with me, and he kicked me off my bicycle. 
And he started to punch me and kick me and he starts to say, you idiot. Every time we're with you, we have to watch our back. We want, to, we want you to stop. We want to have nothing to do with you. And so at that point, they decided that they weren't going to hang out with me anymore. Now, this was a problem because not only didn't I have friends, I didn't have anywhere to live. I didn't have anywhere to stay. And so it was a big, it was a big issue for me. And I remember going, thinking, what am I going to do? So that night I went out to the clubs. I went out to the nightclubs. I'm 15 years old. And the only people I knew who would hang out with me was Chris and his friends. Now, Chris was the head drug dealer. And with all of his friends, they used to hang out in the same place. So I went out to hang out, to buy some stuff from Chris. And then I just hung out there. And they, at first he looked at me and he thought, what are you doing here? Get lost. But I just hung around. And we eventually started to become friends. And, but the thing was, Chris was crazy. Chris was crazy and his friends were crazy. They'd do violent things and they'd get into fights for no reason. I remember one time sitting down at a, at a Burger King outside the nightclub area. And there was, it was about two in the morning. And a, a, a man, a gentleman, walks out of the club. He's about 30 years old. I'm 15 years old. And he's wearing this really cool snapback, this really cool cap. And I go up to Chris and I say, Chris, look at that guy's cap. That's so cool. And he pushes me. He says, Rob, take it. I say, Chris, how am I going to take it? This guy is double my age and triple my size. There's no way I'm going to take it. He pushes me again and he says, take it. Now, you see, I'm, I want Chris's respect. I want Chris's appreciation. I want, I want Chris to like me. And so I played this all in my head. I started to think, look, what's the worst thing that could happen? I will go down. I'll walk towards this 30-year-old. I'll grab his cap. I'll put it on my head. I'll keep walking. The worst thing that could happen was he punched me in the face and he took the cap back. I'll take it just for the respect of Chris. And so I go down. And I jump in front of him and I grab his cap and I put it on my head. And I'm waiting for him to take it. But all I hear is a big thump. And as I turn around, what happened was he did turn around to take the cap back. But I, I, before he could even touch the cap, ten of my friends jumped on him. And they started to beat him up. And they started to punch him and kick him. And at this point he was begging for his life. These 16, 17, 18-year-olds beating up this 30-year-old mercilessly. And he passes out on the floor and he, he comes back to consciousness and he says, please, please, and he's begging for his life. This time he's bleeding. But they continue to punch him and kick him, kick his face, kick his back, till he passes out again. He wakes up again and they continued until he didn't wake up again. And there I am standing in front of him wearing his snapback. And you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking, whoa, I'm so powerful. I have so much respect. I can get away with anything now. These guys are here to, and they've got my back. They, they will fight for me. And I thought that was awesome. That was amazing. But you see, just rewind a bit to my element, year, grade seven. Now, I won, I won a prize in, in year seven for the most altruistic, most kind-hearted student in a school of 2,000 students. 
Because whenever there was someone in need, whenever there was someone who was hurt, I would go and reach out to them. But here I am standing in front of this lifeless body. I'm not even giving a thought to this person there. And I just walk away. And I go to sleep that night. And I wake up at three in the morning in a cold sweat. And I start to think, what have I done? What have I done? Is this guy still alive? Does he still, does he have a wife and children? Does he have family? I didn't know anything. And I started to worry about this person. But the thing was, I desired so much to be liked that that thought only lasted a few minutes. When I went back to sleep the next morning, I went to hang out with Chris again and the gang again. And we continued to steal some more and to deal some more. And we continued to hang out and to get into, into fights because... Again, I was so desperate to be liked. And this is the issue with us, you see. Sometimes we sell ourselves short because we want, each and every one of us wants to be loved. We want to be respected. We want to be admired. We want to be held and, and cared for. And sometimes we compromise ourselves for that. And we forget who we are and who God created us to be. And I was just so lost and so confused. One day, I'm 16 years old. My addictions start to get worse. Violence starts to get, get worse. And I get, a, I get a... I'm sitting in a nightclub, and as I'm sitting there in the nightclub, a group of friends run into the club, and they say, Rob, quickly get out of here, because Chris is looking for you. Now, I had said a lie about Chris, and Chris found out about it, and now he was looking for me. And when Chris is looking for you, it's, it's not good. And so there I am sitting in the club. I get up, and the only thing I could think about was I need to hide. I need to get away. And so I get up, and I run, and I run towards my parents' home, and I knock at the door in the middle of the night. I say, Mom, Dad, you have to help me because these guys are looking for me, and they're going to kill me. And I'm terrified. I don't know what to do. And so they let me in, and... I go to my room and I don't leave my room for eight weeks. I'm terrified. They don't find me. Chris doesn't find me. He finds my best friend, Daniel. And what he does is he corners Daniel. He gets Daniel's head, basically, and smashes it against the wall. And he has a fractured skull. And this guy, these people are now looking for me. I'm terrified. And so each night I would cry myself to sleep. Every morning, think of a way I could end my life. I would harm myself just to, to feel, to be able to feel something because I felt so numb. I spent most of my day just on my bed, just crouching and wanting this pain to go away, but the emotional pain wouldn't go away. The loneliness wouldn't go away. The frustration wouldn't go away. The anger wouldn't go away. And I had to just deal with it. I thought, I'm either going to end it all or something needs to happen. But you see, my parents would knock at the door. And they'd say, Rob, are you okay? Because they'd hear me cry. And my mom especially, she'd knock at the door and she'd say, are you okay? And I'd just say, shut up, mom, leave me alone. I'd slam the door in her face. And I would go back to my room and I would kneel down on my bed and I would cry again in desperation. A few years ago, I wrote a book called Breakthrough. Now, this book 
even though it's available here, but that's not the end what I'm trying to say. This book is now being made into a Hollywood movie as well. And this is the story. You see, before I published it, I wanted to, I wanted to tell I want my mom to read the book. You see, and I wrote about this chapter of me in my room, on my knees, and waiting for my parents to knock at the door. Because you see, what I really wanted was not for my parents, to my mom to knock at the door. I wanted someone to break down that door, to run towards me, to grab me, to hold me, and to tell me that I was going to be okay. To allow me to kick and to swear, just allow me to know for one moment that I was going to be okay. And I was angry at my parents. I'm a priest at this point, and I'm angry at my mom. I'm angry at my dad. Why didn't they break down that door? Why did they just knock at the door? Why didn't they do something more? And I wrote this in the book. I said, Mom, Dad, you have to read this. And so my mom reads it, my dad read it, reads it, and they call me a week later. And now they live in Malta. At this point, I live in Australia. And my mom talks to me, and she says, Rob, I just read, I just read the book. And she starts crying. She said, you, she said, that chapter, when you were in your room, when you were frustrated, when you knocked at the door, there's something you don't know. We never told you, but you need to know this. She said, every time... I knocked at that door, and you slammed the door in my face, and you swore at me, and I would hear the death metal in the background, and I would see the posters of naked women on your wall, and I would see all of the drugs and things you had in your room. Every time you slammed the door in my face and went back to your place of, of desperation, to your knees, according to your book, and where you just cried, and where you were just lonely, she said, every time you slammed that door, we didn't, I didn't walk away. She said, every time you slammed the door, I would fall to my knees outside your room, and I would pray. She said, I would pray. And sometimes I would pray so much that I would be in tears holding my, my, my hand to my face so that you wouldn't hear me, because I would hear your pain, I would see your pain, and I would cry. But I was there, I prayed, I cried. And you know what she said, Rob, I prayed, but you kept getting worse, not better. And so I kept praying. At the same time, I was praying for hope because I knew that God had a hope for you. I knew that God had a future for you. I knew that God had a purpose for your life. But I didn't, I didn't know how to pray it into action. I thought I could just pray, and I prayed. I would kneel down and pray. And when that didn't work, I got my friends to pray and my family to pray, and she called every priest she knew. She called every cousin and every auntie and every sister, any person that would pray for her son because she knew that her son was dying, and so she just was desperate, but she was a warrior. She stopped at nothing, even when prayer wasn't being answered. And she prayed and she cried, and she used to say this, God, please save my little angel. That's me. <laughs> Please save my little angel. And she used to say this. She'd say, Mama Mary, pray for my son. I am not. She made a vow. She said, I'm not going to get off my knees until you save my son. 
And she used to imagine, as she was on her knees and I was on my knees in desperation, she was on her knees in hope, and she knew she couldn't access me, but she knew someone who could. And so she prayed. Now, I'm not saying that prayer is everything, but prayer is the first thing. And so I had faith. I did believe that God existed. Why? Because I used to see my mama pray when I was younger. My earliest memories of my mom is my mom washing the dishes on the, in the sink facing the wall, and she'd wash the dishes, and then she'd put her hands up and argue with the wall and continue washing the dishes. And I realized after some time that she was speaking to God as she was washing the dishes. So I knew that God was there, that was someone you could argue with, someone you could have conversation with, someone you could speak to, cry out to. And so I did have this faith because I saw the faith that she had. You see, I'll tell you this, that faith is caught, not taught. You can't preach your children, your friends, into believing. Faith is contagious. When they see you through the adversity, hold strong to pray on your knees, even when things seem to be getting worse. That faith is contagious. And so she continued to pray. I want to sing this song, which is a song I wrote, which was the prayer my mom used to pray outside my room. It's a song called Angel, and it's a song which is the words of a, of a mom for a child. And maybe even as I pray this, you can pray this for your friends, for your children, for those you've been praying for, for, for ages. But I tell you this, even before I go on, that if you're going to pray for someone, It's going to take everything out of you because that's, some, that's what prayer does you see prayer is work prayer is a war especially for lost souls you are more than I hope for and my heart He's overwhelmed by the beauty of all that you are now And my life is changed forever So I pray that you will be happy That your smile will last forever And God's light will shine within you my little angel, let him dance over you. Let him sing his song so true. Let his face shine bright on you and lead you to a place called home a home for you my little angel for all that may lie ahead now as life serves 
joys and sorrows and I pray that you will hold on to the love that's never ending so I pray that you will be happy that your smile will last forever and God's light will shine within you my As I found myself in this place, in my room, in this darkness, I didn't realize just how, how much I needed, how much God was intervening. You see, things started to happen. It took a while, things started to get worse. The sadness started to get worse. But eventually something happened. You see, I made a deal, a pact with God. I said, God, you have to get me out of here out of this darkness. I reached the end of myself and I said, God, you've got to save me from this darkness. And so I said, God, I'm going to give you a few weeks. Get me out. Get me out. Because if you don't get me out, I'm going to get out myself. And it was, I remember just one time, so I became hypersensitive, hypersensitive to what was going on outside. And one time, there was a telephone call I was overhearing. Now, this was a friend of mine who called to, and there was a conversation between an old friend of mine and my mom. And they're having this conversation, and they're back and forth, and they, my best friend is saying, hey, I'd like to invite Rachel, my sister, to a youth group. And I'm thinking, well, his name is Mark. I'm saying, why would Mark invite Rachel to this youth group? What's going on here? And I, I, the conversation was over and, for, for, and I walk outside my room where my mom was taking the call and I walked to her and I said, Mom, why didn't Mark invite me to the youth group? And she said, because you wouldn't go. We knew you wouldn't go. So he didn't bother inviting you. And I said, okay, fine, I'm going. <laughs> because I wanted to get out. Now, I later found out that, you see, prayer isn't everything, but it's the first thing that my mom was scheming there, that she knew my personality. She knew what would trigger me. And so she took that phone call outside of my room, knowing that I would react. And so I decided, Mark came and picked me up, and I go to this youth group, and there are 200 young people, and they're all happy, and they're all excited, and I'm thinking, man, what a group of freaks. I don't want to have anything to do with them, but you know what? I hated, honestly, I hated every single person there. But I wanted what they had. 
I wanted the peace they had. I wanted the joy they had. I wanted the hope they had. And so I kept going to this youth group. But you see, over there, my mom kept praying. My mom kept making plans for me. And she would call people. And so it, it, one miracle seemed to happen after the other in my life. I went to this youth group. And then all of a sudden, this teacher, I eventually went back to school. And as soon as I got back, there was this teacher who gave me this CD of this cool Christian band, heavy metal band. And I started to listen to that. And I all of a sudden got addicted to this Christian heavy metal music. And then from this heavy metal music, I started to listen to softer music. Eventually, within six months, I was listening to praise and worship. And again... That was my mother scheming. She called my school and asked the teacher to give a CD which she had bought. You see, I do believe that prayer gives you wisdom and opens doors that you don't. And this I found out after the book was written. So my mom explained all of this. And, I, and it was just one, one thing, one knock at, at my heart after the other. But then I kept going to this youth group and one day there was this preacher and he was a doctor, a medical doctor and he started to talk about Jesus. Now he started to talk about Jesus in a way I had never heard before, you see. For me, Jesus was someone far away. Someone who knew my situation but was too busy for me. And he, he stood there and he started to talk about Jesus. And I don't remember a thing he said, but one thing I do remember was how he spoke about Jesus. He spoke about Jesus as though he had had coffee with him that morning. And I wanted coffee with Jesus. I wanted to know Jesus like he knew Jesus. I wanted the joy that he had. I wanted the peace that he had. So I remember coming home, sitting down on a chair, putting another chair in front of me, tapping the chair, saying, Jesus, sit down, I want to talk to you. And I sat down and I spoke to Jesus on the same, I was sitting on the same bed that before I was harming myself. The same bed that before I, I was rocking myself in desperation. Now I was talking to Jesus because I saw someone who loved Jesus. I wanted to love Jesus like he did. And so I continued to pray every day. And eventually, one day I had this incredible encounter with the love of God, which I, even though it was an incredible experience, this is, you see, sometimes these incredible encounters, these feeling encounters, they're so important, they're amazing, and some of us might experience it here, but it is not essential for your conversion. It's not essential for your faith. Sometimes these transfiguration moments are given to us, but at the end of the day, we can't depend on them. Feeling is great. Feeling are great, are great guides, but terrible leaders. And so I'm sitting there and I have this all of a sudden, this amazing encounter of love. And I feel so much love that my heart is going to explode. And I, this, this love was, I had to hold a pillow to my face because I was, I was just crying with love, this love that I had experienced. And after two hours of crying, I stood up. And you know what the first thought was? It was not how amazing this feeling was was, man, I need to tell the world about it. And so I go out and I go and tell my mom. I say, mom, guess what just happened? I just, I just experienced the love of Jesus. And she's looking, what? What? And I was just trying to tell her, to explain to her. And then all of a sudden, she starts crying. You see, 
And I, I have, from that was the first moment. These are the moments of my conversion. But I just want to finish off with this. I stand here today alive. I stand here today as a priest because of my mama. Because she never gave up on me. She never stopped praying for me. And she experienced, and she prayed, she did this in three ways. And these are the three things that you need to do to pray for souls. One is to realize the promise of God over your life, but realize the prophet, promise of God over your children. The devil will have his own promise. The devil will have his own words spoken over your children, your grandchildren, over your family and friends. Know what God says. Know what God prophesies over them, that he has created them for heaven to be saints. Know that. Number two, recognize that you need to be a warrior to fight for it. Prayer is not about putting your hands together, turning your head to the right and looking holy. Prayer, prayer is about fighting in the spiritual world. It's about crying. It's about grazing your knees. It's about screaming at the devil. It's about standing and claiming the promise that you have seen, the promise that you know, and claiming it to God. If I was Jesus, which thank God I'm not, I'd be terrified not to answer the prayer of a praying mama. If I was the devil, if I was the devil, I'd also be terrified of a praying mama. Because if a mama sees their child in harm, they're going to walk through you. They're going to do whatever it takes to get to their child. And this is how you have to approach your prayer. You are a warrior. Stop being passive in your prayer. Go to war in your prayer. Know that you are strong, that you are a warrior woman, that you are called to change lives. Sometimes we stop because we give up. We don't realize how strong we are, how strong you are. And number three is persevere. Even when things get worse, keep praying, keep expecting, keep crying out to God because your prayer will be answered. And many prayers are lost because they're prayed once, twice, a thousand times, 10,000 times, instead of a million times. Keep praying. Keep believing. Keep recognizing the promise that God has for your life. God has created you for greatness. And God has a plan for your life. But he also has called you to be warrior women. To stop feeling sorry for yourselves. To stop thinking that that God is not going to answer your prayer. God is, but you need to work for it. You need to pray for it. With prayer also comes wisdom. Be like my mom, be a schemer in getting people, get, ask God for wisdom. Because with prayer also comes wisdom. So if you'll allow me, I'd like to pray a quick prayer for you, especially for those who are praying for the conversion. You're praying for the souls of your children, grandchildren praying for friends and family, parents even. And so, Lord God, we just come to you as we are, asking you to give us this armor so that we can go to war, a spiritual war, praying for our families, our children, grandchildren, friends, our nation, our country, for those who are vulnerable, the unborn, the weak, elderly, Lord, we come to you as your children, as your intercessors, asking that you give us fire in our hearts, hope in our souls. 
Lord, I pray that you help them, these women understand the dignity to which you've called them and the strength that you've given them. And Lord, I ask your blessing, your peace over them, the fire in their hearts in the name of the Father and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you.